Welcome to the Campus Experience with Josh Farr. This podcast explores the fascinating world of student leadership with a focus on clubs and societies, as well as ambassadorial, entrepreneurial, and leadership programs. I'm your host, Josh. This audio experience also documents my journey building Campus Consultancy. With unprecedented demand for our first-of-its-kind program, I'll show you how I'm realising the potential of connected and empowered student communities by building Australia's most recognised entrepreneurial leadership program. Thank you for joining and enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Joshua Gore, the fifth president of Bright Future Society, UniSA. Joshua and I connected earlier this year when I heard about an ambitious fundraising goal he'd set and how he was bringing student groups together to achieve it. In this episode of the Campus Experience, we'll be talking about Joshua's experience with multiple not-for-profits, including Oxfam, AIM, and what he's working on with the Bright Future Society, UniSA. Joshua, welcome to the show, and thanks for coming along and having a chat. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, very, very welcome. So tell everybody a little bit about what the Bright Future Society, UniSA, is and what it does to make the world a better place. Yeah, so the Bright Future Society focuses on providing professional and career development services for UniSA students. Uh, at our university, one problem we have, which I suppose resonates to a lot of universities, is a lack of uh, developmental opportunities when it comes to the professional element of things. We're great at academic, but the, there's a real lack of both student engagement and retention on it. So we try and provide those services which allow students to become more holistic, uh, well-rounded individuals as they leave with that professional experience. And hopefully that gives those students that have engaged with the community a better opportunity to get more successful, more impactful jobs for them personally, and it'll allow them to make a better impact on society. Cool. And how did you decide that this was an area that you were interested in being involved with? A bit about me, I study commerce accounting at UniSA and I've just completed my third year. And in my first year, I was lucky enough to know enough faculty that I really got a great deal of information and was uh, able to capitalise on that. So I was going around doing all sorts of initiatives, being involved in student reports, these sorts of things. And I felt that the, the amazing feeling and the great time I was having at university was the consequence of information, basically. Uh, the fact that I knew about things that some other students didn't. It wasn't necessarily merit-based. So I was very passionate about giving students those same experiences I had. Particularly at UniSA, we have very low undertaking of international opportunities. And it's one of those things where I was lucky enough to use four of my electives of my five electives going overseas. It was incredibly informative and life-changing experience. And it's things that students at UniSA were missing out. So that at least when I got involved with Bright Futures, I felt like I had that obligation to give students as much opportunity and uh, possibility to undertake those experiences however possible. So tell me a little bit about the big fundraising goal that you set and the thinking behind bringing clubs together to try to achieve it. Yeah, so back in the latter half of this year, I, uh, that being 2018, I started what we tentatively called the Club Co-Fundraiser, which me being an accountant, I shouldn't have come up with the name, but too late for that anyway, I suppose. Um, I needed a marker on that. 
But um, no, basically the story behind that is I was lucky enough to, um, for one of my courses, to go over to a UN symposium in Bangkok, Thailand, with over a thousand other delegates at a humanitarian affairs symposium. So learning about social issues and what's afflicting the world right now. And listening to some of the amazing speakers that were were there, such as John Wood from Room to Read and David Bugbee from um, a Hong Kong charity. It was incredibly inspiring, but it was inspiring in a sense, because I think there's two kinds of inspired. There's an inspired that makes you feel good, but doesn't provide any pragmatic detail. And then there was this sort of inspired where immediately after when you start getting out a notepad and planning this whole master plan of how you're going to change the world. Um, and, and so that was sort of what I was afflicted with after Bangkok. I, I thought, what can I do as an individual? Well, I thought from a, a club basis with Bright Future Society, there's only so much reach you can get. And honestly, if we tried to do something to really significantly change things, it would probably, because we wouldn't have that manpower, it would fall flat on its face and then we would get all dejected. We would think, what's the point of it? So I felt that we had to go bigger and from a business perspective, it's essentially the same as reaching economies of scale. So what we actually did was got a coalition of clubs together and the main uh, essence of the, the fundraiser is by working collaboratively between, at this point, a dozen clubs, finding ways to, to collaborate, to either bring down costs or bring in new revenues that wouldn't have existed otherwise. And then because of the fact that they're completely uh, newly found revenues and expenses, you can move over a, lot, a large percentage of those to these um, charitable causes. So for this year, we're supporting Room to Read the support education, particularly girls' education throughout Asia and Africa. Um, I'm actually reading the, the founder's book right now, and it's, it's quite a good read. So that, that's the main uh, function and operative backstory of how it came about. Yeah. Very cool. And how much are you hoping to raise as a coalition? The dream would be by the end of next year to raise about $20,000. Um, that's enough to build two libraries. Our plan is to build one in Vietnam and one in India um, because uh, those are some of the most afflicted parts of the world where they desperately need that education. And it was always poetic to us being an educative education facility that's working uh, tirelessly to provide education around the world. There was always that great sense of poetry in it. So hopefully by the end of next year, we'll be able to reach that goal. Um, it's it's been an interesting and bumpy journey, I suppose, because arranging something of that scale, you come across some difficulties and, and a lot of people having different interests. So tell us about some of those those challenges and some of those bumps. One of the particular ones is you can imagine with so many people, it, with about 15 different clubs involved, you have obviously 15 different presidents that you're trying to liaison through and you have the capacity for a lot of varying interests. For example, we had presidents there that weren't necessarily viewing this as a more community-minded or, or charitable enterprise. They perhaps thought of this as uh, an opportunity to make the club look better or to network or things like that. And I always felt that that sort of individual 
benefit motive it is good for an ex- to an extent if it can bring out that charitable mindset but to to that extent it, w- it was not getting along well so it was about realizing you know who's the who's the sheep and who's the wolves sort of thing um realizing who's in this with that actual intent and that can be quite difficult when you're at a university level because when you're at a, a, an employment full-time job you have that capacity to sort of be a, be a chooser not a beggar but at university it can be a lot more difficult particularly when you're trying to work with faculty so sort of having those standards of who you're going to work with it at university was something we had to um, to work on another particular issue was who we were actually going to fundraise for so I personally uh, wanted to fundraise for room to read this charity that I mentioned but there was a whole um, array of different issues with who to actually choose for example some of the clubs that were involved well are involved are you know Indonesian clubs uh, European clubs um, African and Chinese and Japanese clubs so there was those conflicts arising of well if the Japanese club is working so hard to support efforts in India when they've just been ravished by a tsunami or earthquake how would that look to their members for example um, so we had to work our way around those and additionally there were other clubs like the the, um, the Amnesty Club or Batia, the, the Mental Illness Club which do amazing work but they felt that they couldn't really get on board because they would rather support their own causes which is definitely a, a perfectly valid mindset but it was just a, a lot of limitations that I definitely wasn't expecting through proper management and negotiation you can you can solve most of these problems it's about you know, giving something before you take it but yeah there, there were plenty of plenty of issues involved so I definitely would say to anyone who is thinking about starting their own charitable enterprise or or initiative that wouldn't I wouldn't expect now after this whole experience I wouldn't expect everyone to be wanting to come along board that's going to be a cakewalk or anything just because it's good for for the world doesn't mean um, it automatically gets a free pass in the proposal stage. I think that's a really important point, something I definitely learned the hard way. The amount of times Mm -hmm. I've gone to something and you get inspired and whether it's, as you say, you know, type one or type two of inspiration and you write down a whole business plan, you're like, this is going to be great, we're going to raise millions and you go back and pitch it to people and everyone's like, yeah, that's, you know, that's great, but I'm kind of doing a thing over here or I care about this or I've seen that not work or you know, I've got my own idea or my own take, or it'd be better if we did it this way. I think it takes a lot of a lot of humility to know that you're coming from a really good place, but also know that you don't have all the answers. And there's a lot to learn from being in a coalition like that, having all the voices in the room and also listening to them and accepting that sometimes other people will have different ways to go forward. And if not everyone can get on board with an idea, I think that's just that's human nature, right? Not even though some things are great for the world, they're not necessarily great for everyone right now to be involved in. Exactly, and particularly in the field of charity, one th- a quote that I, an amazing quote that I heard while I was in Bangkok was that you can't be everything for everyone. So there's, let's say for for me in particular, if I go on and spend the next twenty years working in the the accounting profession, should I? at that point quit that and build wells in Africa or should I use those skill sets to to work with charities that need accounting work because 
a lot of charities, the thing they need most is actually professions, the, the professional people to come in and help them on the back end, um, perhaps pro bono, uh, particularly lawyers. So there, there's that sort of thing where you, you can't be everything for everyone. So you have to work out what you what you can do, which has the greatest utility. And for other clubs, they felt that their greatest utility was working in other areas, which is perfectly valid. You just need to find like-minded people. And if you have a cause that resonates with people enough, you can find those people. Like working in girls' education, you can always find people that are willing to support that from both an individual and business perspective. Big but time. you're absolutely right also about the, the communication sense of things. If, if I had a team of 15 people uh, in that collective, I would rather, much rather it be me listening to 14 minds than me only listening to my own. Um, you, you're going to go so much further if you're, well, firstly, have that mindset of um, I want to hear other people's ideas, but also you, you need to be a very good listener and a very good communicator to get that out of people. Because one other problem we came across was the since this initiative was like technically started in, in week three of a semester, there was a lot of incentive to move it along very quickly. But one problem we came across is that there were a couple of presidents who missed out on key pieces of communication and they became quite uh, disturbed about how quickly things were going and, and how out of the loop they were. And because that communication wasn't established soon enough or with great enough vigour, by the time that they spoke out, they were significantly behind, which meant the, the whole uh, group had to backtrack re-vote on things, re-establish things. Uh, it just it delayed a whole lot of things, which probably rolled back the practical launch by about a semester. So um, the, the communication is one of the most important things, particularly if you're working with people who have their own clubs to be interested in. Like if you're working with your own executives, and that's a different story because you don't need to worry about what's going through their mind as much. But if you're working with other clubs, Establishing that really strong and structured communication method is one of the most important things you can do with these sorts of initiatives. Great time. A, ma a massive meta learning for clubs and something we speak on a lot in our training programs and probably one of the favorite pieces of feedback from our training programs from a student's perspective is when we do a lot of work on teamwork and understanding different, not just different personality types because there's lots of tests for that, but really understanding the core needs and drivers of what motivates human behavior within a team. And so, for example, even as you say, like, oh, if I have my own executive, I might not need to speak with them as much. Even within a team or a, a group of two or three people, sometimes people can all be on board, actually be on board the exact same cause, but have completely different motivations for doing so. So, yeah, it might be about like charity or this kind of overarching need of contribution to the world. But second to that, they might be involved in a club and society because it really makes them feel significant and they get respect and they feel really good about themselves and they're proud of their work. And if you go and do something that's high risk or something that's never been done before, that might scare them or violate that sort of sense of um, certainty or significance. Whereas others might be in, they might be there to contribute, but those secondary and tertiary needs might be more around, they want to do something fun and exciting that's never been done before and they want to develop new skills. So if they're driven by variety and growth, then the idea of a new fundraiser might be really exciting and they see all the opportunity. 
So it's really hard for what I've seen in at a student level or even at like a corporate level because we're never really taught about how to understand at a psychological level what motivates team members to figure out whether they're within the team or from another team, what's driving them can have a massive influence on whether they get on board with an idea or not, even though that might be completely subconscious and not, they might voice it as I have my doubts, but really what they're saying is, oh, that violates this core need that I have, which is actually half the reason I'm involved. Mm, Absolutely. And that's one, one thing that I recommend for club presidents is interviewing your own executive um, a, a lot of club presidents, particularly, uh, at least in my experience, can inherit an executive. The problem with that is that you don't know the people. So at least for me, when I was interviewing executives for the positions, I would ask about their hobbies, what they're interested in, what motivates them, as you say, a lot of what you've been talking about. So, And I would keep those on record. So later on in the semester, if like we have this, this cool new project that focuses on let's say um, let's say water uh, management studies you know for example if we're having an event on that theoretically then I can go through those records see who's interested in, in those sort of larger issues and who might not be as interested in it. so you can very easily apply the right team to the right uh, issue um, and you can flip that on its head entirely. Like if you have a more social event that's focused on bringing people together, not necessarily on ideas, it could be a very chill networking event. I would know from the interviews I've done who is really uh, focused on that sort of more communal element, really fun, uh, uh, good person to be around. So having that understanding from the interview stage, I think is very important when selecting your executive and for the entirety of their duration in the club. It just gives you that capacity to really put the right people on the right tasks. And that that in and of itself will improve a club's efficiency quite significantly. Couldn't agree more. And to, to keep that conversation open, so to check in with them throughout the year and say, you know, at the start, you, you wanted to do this, you've either done it or not done it yet. Do you still want to get an opportunity to do that? In which case, let's co-create something. Or if not, if you actually realize that you're not as interested in doing a work with this charity and instead you really want to develop these skills, how can we give you an opportunity to do that? I think in a team, if team members see a leader really care about their development, they're so much more committed to the overarching vision. It's so much easier to hitch your wagon along to a leader if you know that you'll also get what you need if you follow in that direction. Yeah, a, a lot of people are sort of scared, particularly in this more volunteer dynamic of figuring out what they're going to get out of something, which I think to what I was speaking before, it can be a good mindset sometimes. For example, in my first year at university, I volunteered a lot for AIM, which stands for Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. And what AIM do a arrange university tutors and mentors um, amongst the student population to help out Indigenous high school students to work with them on not only on their academic work but also provide them um, you know a community uh, friendships uh, some people to aspire to a really strong mentor um, so, so I did that for a lot of um, my first and second year and for me 
I could have come into it uh, focusing on the real, the real selfless approach. I, I just want to help people who haven't had the same opportunities that I have had. But going into it with also a sense of while I'm here, I would love to work on my communication because historically through high school, I was a really strong introvert, could barely talk to people. So having this opportunity will allow me to work on that. I can also work on my leadership, figuring out what resonates with people, how to get people out of their comfort zones and to trust me. And having that self-interest, but in a pragmatic sense, allowed me to be really successful in that role. I ended up tutoring at four different high schools at once and actually won the mentor of the year for the whole state. I was lucky enough to go to an award night in Sydney. So coupling that selfless communal, I want to help other people sense with a, a carrot for yourself can really drive you to do more for the community as it is. And it might seem at first wrong to look at a volunteer opportunity or a charity opportunity and think about what you can get out of it. But if you treat that as just further incentive to do the right thing, then it can really push you to do a lot more for the world than you would otherwise. That's why, like, for example, Elon Musk, if he didn't become a billionaire off of, um, you know, changing how we use energy and going to space and these sorts of things, the chances that someone like him would do something like that would be significantly lowered. So changing the world, but also having that idea of how you're growing from it can be a really good driver for a lot of people. I couldn't agree more. And I've rarely heard that thesis articulated more clearly than you just did. I believe that passionately. I think there's nothing wrong with knowing who you are and what you're getting out of a situation. It's a naive point of view to say that people will do things and get nothing in return because it's it's not sustainable. And I've seen mm. this through organizations and even career paths that I've gone down for a while where you give and you give and you give and you give. And unless you're returning such that like it's a, a win for both sides, it won't work. It's how partnerships mm. form. Like one of the, the habits of seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey is this idea of think, win, win. And this whole idea of that if you're making a partnership with somebody at a minimum level, you both have to benefit from the partnership. And at the highest mm. level, you have that sum of the parts is greater than the whole concept where by both chipping in, you get more out than you could individually. Without that idea and without being really transparent about why you're here and what motivates you and what you're looking for, there's sometimes a politeness, but that politeness wears off when people start getting frustrated that they're not getting back what they're putting mm -hmm. in. It's interesting in the idea of charity is that there's a whole bunch of research, or a whole bunch of research from Gallup that talks, we use it in our presentations, that surveyed people in countries all around the world. And it says that in a major, gross majority, I think it's like 122 out of 135 countries, on average across the entire population, when they were asked, there's a positive correlation between giving more and feeling more happiness. And this is true mm -hmm. regardless of socioeconomic status. So it's not just that the people at the top who have more financially give more and are happy because of it. Regardless of where you are socioeconomically, if you give more, you will feel more happiness. So that, and there's a Gandhi quote around it that I can't remember at this time that says, essentially, to give is in your self-interest, but that's a good thing. And that you should mm -hmm. give because it does make you feel good. And it shouldn't be from a place of sympathy, but it should be from a place of, this is going to make me feel good. 
it's going to make you feel good, and therefore it's a win-win on both sides. That, that sort of mindset, I think, is what's driving a lot of this really what I think beneficial change of mindset to the social enterprise model of social sustainability. Like, totally. Obviously, I've, I've worked with other entities like Oxfam, focus on a much more traditional one-way model of receiving donations. And it just it hasn't been sustainable, like doing it myself, going out there trying to get money or watching other people do it. Everyone's walked past that person and seen how uncomfortable they are and how uncomfortable you are. If that uncomfort exists in that dynamic, it mustn't be working efficiently when you have a social enterprise that has sort of business mindset. Like particularly, uh, I mentioned before, the CEO of Room to Read, John Wood, he was a former Microsoft executive. So obviously like real uh, capitalistic type, he brought that mentality to his charity Room to Read. So, so achieving socioeconomic beneficial outcomes, but through a business and capitalistic mindset, is been able to achieve incredible efficiency in the education sphere that no other people have been able to. So you're absolutely right in having those, you know, Milton Freeman types be able to use their genius to not only benefit themselves, but benefit society in a more general manner is going to be in the interest of everyone. So it's about being pragmatic about these things. You can't expect everyone to be angels, I suppose. It's about letting people do the best for society in a way that they actually can that's sustainable. Big time. And that's where I think it's getting really interesting in the social enterprise model. I just recently in October went over to the USA, spent a week in San Jose at the Enactus World Cup. And Enactus is basically the student organization that's existed for nearly 50 years. Uh, it used to be called SIFE. And the idea mm -hmm. is that they train students on campus, uh, campuses all over the world, more than I think it's 1,700 across the world. Um, to build up their own social enterprise models. And then they go and basically have somewhere between a pitch competition and a business case competition. And it teaches them all the professional skills around business and pitching and blah, 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 teamwork. But what comes out of it are these really amazing social impact initiatives that they're assessed on how sustainable they are. And they're assessed on their outcomes, not just their outputs. And it's this really, really well-rounded model. We had thousands of people in this big hall in San Jose, teams from 35 countries, you know, millions and millions of dollars in sponsorship for this event. Uh, and some of the winning teams um, could measure their impact in countries, adding tens of millions of dollars in direct profit to the end users' bottom line. Um, farmers who they'd literally created a middle class in one country by helping all these farmers increase their growth. But the whole idea was based around building something that's good for the world, but also sustainable in a way that everybody wins, including students who are involved as volunteers, because they get the skills, they get to benefit from actually building something, rather than, as you say, that, that somewhat awkward um, feeling of standing on the side of the street and holding the bucket and hoping people put their coins in, which is great from like a sales training point of view, if that's the skills that people want. But from my experience, when I've wanted to be involved in charities, it's because I've wanted to communicate the power of the cause and the change I wanted to see, not I wanted to get really good at selling stuff. And I think there's an incongruence there in the traditional charity model, which relies so often on getting young, passionate people to become very good salesmen rather than getting young, very intelligent, 
data-driven students to put their business mind to work and actually come up with a model that's sustainable without them driving growth by donations. Absolutely. And like being in the, the UniSA business school, a very successful business school, I've had the opportunity to meet so many amazingly talented, amazingly inter intellectual individuals who have this oxymoronic idea that like going into social benefit means you're going to be like living with rags for a lot of time. Like you're going to be that person who doesn't have much, has a great heart, but doesn't have much materially. And then there's the complete contrast of that as someone with uh, no, no contribution at all. They're like a fund manager, that sort of thing. And they had that image that there's two extremes that there's definitely something, nothing in the middle and anything that really is, is an outlier. Changing that sort of mentality, making people think you, you can be successful individually, you can achieve what you want to in life while having that benefit for society generally. You're going to attract a lot more of those intelligent, ambitious, really savvy business types that I see all around universities around Australia. You're going to get a lot more of those thinking about how they can change the world. I think that's the key to unlocking a lot more manpower and a lot more mind power in the charities uh, space. That's something where, I mean, I'm really excited. There's a, an event in Melbourne. I'm moderating a panel. We've got speakers like Dan Flynn from Thank You. We've got some of the founders from the toilet paper company who gives a crap. These social mm. enterprise models that they're literally looking around the house. Like if people are listening to this, it's like look around your environment, pick one object that you've paid for at any point. So I'm looking at a hat, a coffee cup, sunglasses case, um, my iPhone case, whatever. Pick an object and imagine what a business model would look like if you created an alternative to that object with the triple bottom line in mind. So people involved, profit, of course, so the sustainability, but the planet as well, that you could sell where a portion of that profit went towards some sort of cause. And these models like, Thank you, where they sell bottled water and soap and hand lotion. And the products are great, but like bottled water is bottled water. The benefit is people will pay slightly more for a product. And there's so much research that proves this. More than 70% of people will pay slightly more for a product where they know some of the profits goes towards the cause because there's a feeling that they get out of that purchase that they enjoy that they're willing to pay for. And when we run these modules with students from a, a design thinking workshop, we try to get people to say, to understand that every purchasing decision you make is to get a feeling, every one of them. If you buy a coffee, it's because you want a feeling. If you buy a certain brand, it's because you want a feeling of what it's like to wear that. If you, you see, you know, the old rich white guy who's driving a bright red Ferrari, who's probably got some other issues going on, he bought that because he wants a feeling. And we know that if you buy these products, you engage with these social enterprises, people will pay more because they get a feeling of doing good. You can go online, you can enter your code on the back of the thank you product. You can see the exact project where your dollars have gone to. And that feeling is tangible and real. And now what's really interesting, I think what we're really jamming on right now is this idea that there's a huge opportunity for students to look at that as a very legitimate career path because it works amongst all the competitors in a, a business climate. They have their place in social enterprises have such an interesting place in the economy. And I think it's an area where we're going to see more and more brilliant young people like yourself who've been overseas, who've 
read quite broadly, who've challenged this, challenged themselves as a leader and as an individual who start to go, I want to have an impact. I don't want to do it in an unsustainable way. What if I put a real business model behind it? That did social good. I think that's just a really cool kind of junction that we're at right now. And it's really interesting to see brilliant young people going down that path. Especially the more entrepreneurial types, because you can imagine how difficult it must be to launch a a new product or things like that, particularly if you're a student and you don't get much seed funding. Having that social element can be a really strong competitive advantage. It's something that your competition can't offer to the same extent that you can if you really indoctrinate it into your mentality. And you can do some research um, yourself, viewers, on how uh, some of these real success stories of new products being launched or a new competition being introduced into a market that's had the, you know, um, uh, for every one of these sold, 2% of it goes to this charity. Those sorts of things, if they're done sincerely and very well, can have huge, huge positive impacts for the sale of those products. So particularly for entrepreneurs, that sort of mentality can really offer, obviously, not only social gains, but really strong competitive advantages. This is so much fun. And I think of all the podcasts I've recorded so far, this has definitely been like the top example where it's just spun into two guys. Maybe it's because we have the same name, just jamming (laughs) on an idea that we both really care about. Um, So I hope we'll be be able to do it again. For people listening who might want to keep up with what you're doing, what you're doing with the coalition of clubs, or generally follow any of the initiatives that you're involved with, where would you recommend people go to find out more? Yeah, so definitely finding me on LinkedIn, uh, one of the best ways to go about that. So just on LinkedIn is Joshua Gore. Alternatively, keeping an eye on the Bright Future Society UniSA website can be a great way to hear about these sorts of things. So um, just as it was said, Bright Future Society, UniSA on Facebook, um, and we'll keep the, the whole community updated on what we're achieving. And hopefully we go a long way with it. It's, it's still got a, a couple of months to go, um, and particularly once next semester rolls out, we'll hopefully be releasing a lot of success stories. Awesome. Josh, thanks heaps for your time. I'll put all the links to everything we talked about in the show notes, and best of luck with everything you're doing this year and next. Cheers. Thank you so much. Hearing about what Josh is up to is absolutely incredible. If you're interested in reading about any of the resources we mentioned, you can check us out. We're now live on the Apple Podcast Store and all the details are in the show notes. If you want to help Josh or you can in any way, please reach out to him and offer him your support. If you're interested in finding more episodes of the podcast, you can check them all out by going to www.campusconsultancy.org forward slash podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again very soon.